So, uh, <clears throat> so this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday, and uh, we're also going to be talking about uh, all, a little bit about all hell, the power of Jesus, name the hymn. And, uh, you know, last Sunday, I was, this is interesting, because last Sunday we did uh, Fanny Crosby. He wrote like 9,000 hymns. I mean, she's this amazing saint. Uh, this week we're doing Edward Perrinet, uh wrote this hymn, and he's, he's a one-hit wonder. This is it. It's the only one he wrote that ever, so you all know what a one-hit wonder, right? You know, so just, just as a little test here, so uh, see if you can remember some of these. Uh, who, who sang these songs? Uh, who let the dogs out? No? Where was Baja men? There you go. Somebody over here. Okay. The future's so bright, I got to wear shades. Where was it? Over here, I heard it. Ten buck three. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Who sang Kung Fu Fighting? Uh-huh. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. That's Carl Douglas. Okay. Now we're going to get back a little bit. Some of us who are a little of a certain age. Who did Inagata Davida? Yeah, yeah. Several of you. Iron Butterfly. Yeah. Okay. And recently we had Halloween. Who did the Monster Mash? No. Bobby Pick. He did a little Bobby Pickett. And, and if you're reaching way back, who sang Get a Job? The silhouettes. Somebody at 9.30 said, my mother. <laughs> and I was going, possibly? That, that, yeah, that could be. Yeah, yeah, one hit wonder, yeah. Those are all one hit wonders, yes, yeah. So, so this, is, uh, this, well, this week as we get on to Cairo, uh, I mean, the, uh, Christ the King, we're going to be talking about all hell, the power of Jesus' name, the, the hymn of this. But I want you to hear that the singing songs of praise is, is, is something that the church has been doing for a long time. So if we go, if we go all the way back to King David, uh, you find songs of praise like this. And I'm going to invite you to do this responsibly. Uh, I'll do the gray part and you do the uh, wider part, okay? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Yeah, the people of God have been singing praise to God for thousands of years. So uh, this morning, this is a, a time not only to sing a, song, a hymn of praise, but also to praise God as the King of our lives. Let's pray. Mighty Father, we ask you to come and be in the midst of this morning and let your presence rest upon us uh, and call us together uh, under your kingship. Uh, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, I like to remind people on this Sunday that the, the church year, uh, this is the last Sunday of the church year, and the church year was originally designed as a teaching tool, kind of like the great stained uh, glass windows of the cathedrals, uh, in a time when uh, printed materials weren't readily available. So the year uh, was laid out to tell the story. So next Sunday is the first Sunday of the church year, the first Sunday of Advent, Adventeer to come. It's the time of waiting for the coming of Christ, and, and we'll spend several weeks preparing for the coming of Christ, and then we'll celebrate the birth of Christ in the Christ Mass, Christmas, 
uh, and we'll celebrate that for a few weeks before we go into Epiphany, which is the season of the revelation of Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then from that, we move into the season of Lent, when the days become longer, when they lengthen, uh, which is a season of preparation for Christ's uh, entry into Jerusalem and the time of His trial and His crucifixion, which leads us to the celebration of His resurrection in Easter. And then 50 days later, at the count of 50, into Pentecost, uh, which is the season when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, the birth of the church, uh, the acts of the uh, early church of the apostles. And then at the close of that time, we move into a season that's called ordinary time. That's a fancy theological term uh, <clears throat> where we tell the stories of the church and the ministry of the church and, and the teachings of Christ and, and other pieces of scripture we run through that. And having told the story all through the year, uh, we come down to today, which is the last day of the church year, and on this day we proclaim that Christ is king. Christ is the king of our lives. The symbol that goes with this is called the Cairo, and I know, I know that looks like a PX, uh, but, but in the Greek alphabet, uh, what looks like the X there is the Chi, uh, and it's the first letter of Christos, and what looks like a P is, is the Rho, it's the first letter of Re, Christos Re, Christ the King. And so this is the symbol that represents that. And as we come in, you know, we, we pick up scriptures where the, the kingship of Christ is lifted up. Uh, in Philippians, uh, Paul writes that God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then in the end of the ages in John's Revelation, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. That's where the, the whole royal diadem thing comes from. Singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This, this understanding of the divinity of Christ and Christ as the king, because in him all things were made, all things were sustained. And so we have this kind of a day we come to when we, we declare that. And, and I want to give you a little kind of handle on some of the language around some of this stuff. Um, when you go into Scripture and you start looking at the covenant language of Scripture, uh, it hold, it, it's connected very strongly to what in that day and time was called the suzerain vassal treaty. Um, this in the Middle East and the ancient Middle East, this was a treaty between a greater and a lesser power. And that could be a, a, like a nation, uh, it could be a city-state, uh, it could be a, a commercial kind of enterprise, uh, it could even be among individuals. And so you had this understanding of a greater and a lesser power. And the, and the contract or the covenant that was made was that the suzerain, the greater power, would extend protection over the lesser in return for their obedience. And in those agreements, when you read them, literally, in the language of them, the word love means obedience or compliance of the vassal to the conditions that are set. And the word hate means disobedience and rebellion. And so it'll say things like, uh, if you love me, the suzerain will write, if you love me, uh, you will keep my commandments and it will list them all down, and I will extend my protection and blessing over you. And then it will say, if you hate me, implies disobedience and rebellion, I will withdraw my protection from you, and these are the curses that will fall upon you. Does that sound familiar at all when you think about covenant language in the scripture where God says things like, today I've set before you blessing in life, death and curse, choose blessing. 
or where in John's gospel, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, that language carries over. Now, now in the suzerain vassal treaty, it had kind of a political uh, understanding to it. But in, in, in when it comes into the covenant in Scripture, it has more of a relational understanding. And you and I really do know what that's about, don't we? Um, if you enter into a business agreement, somebody's going to be a partner with you in a business, and you say, okay, I'm going to do this, and you're going to do that. And you all agree, this is how we're going to run this business. And your partner is faithful and does what your partner says they're going to do, and they uphold their end of the deal, and they treat you well and all that. You say things like, man, I really love working with that person. It's a real blessing to be in business with that person. On the other hand, if they don't uphold their end of the deal, and they're constantly dumping stuff on you and taking advantage of you, you'll say things like, I hate working with them. They're just a real curse in my life right? We understand this. We understand it in relational sense. And, and, and if, you're, you know, if you're married and you've entered into the covenant of marriage, you understand that. Even though our, our marriage vows, we took obedience out of it a while uh, back, you know, we understand that there's a, a certain agreement that we enter into. I'm going to be faithful to you as long as I live, and, and, and I'm to be obedient to that agreement uh, and, and honor that to my spouse. And if I do, there's love and blessing, and if I don't, there's not. So, so a number of years back, uh, one morning, uh, I, I, I woke up when my wife backhanded me in bed. And I woke up, whoa, what was that? What, what the, what's that about? What are you doing? She said, I saw you with that woman. I said, what are you talking about? I'm just, I'm... And she goes, in my dream, you were with that woman. And, and, and my response then was to say back to her, you know, baby, you know, okay, that's your dream. That has nothing to do with me or what I'm doing. It has everything to do with what's going on inside your head. You know how well that went, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she didn't talk to me in like three days. She was furious with me because even though it wasn't real in her mind, that event had occurred, and emotionally it had engaged hate and curse. We understand that. And so that language comes across to us in Scripture that, you know, God calls us into this relationship. God calls us into this understanding. And the, and the feudal language of, of kingship came into the Scripture as they translated it. And they were trying to find more medieval kind of European language where, where you had the, the Lord or the king who would have the castle or the keep. And he would extend protection over the people in his, his province or in the village. And in return, they would provide him craft work and food and so forth. When an enemy came, they could run inside the walls of the castle and be safe, and he would send his troops out to protect them. And so there was this arrangement that went forth. So, so that brings across into Scripture this understanding that God extends protection and blessing over us, uh, but we're called to, be, to love, including being obedient to what God calls us to, and to love only God, to love the Lord your God alone. Uh, so there's this understanding of this within Scripture. Uh, the, the, the difference is it depends, all depends on what kind of king you're talking about, doesn't it? It all depends on what kind of king you're talking about. So um, when, when Captain Cook made his great voyage of discovery through, uh, through the South Pacific, he came through the area that we call French Polynesia now upon an island kingdom that was known as the Tuamotus, and they're still, they still are actually that called that. Um, and when he came there, he discovered there a, a, a really 
physically large and very fierce uh, uh, group of warriors and uh, was somewhat alarmed by that. And so upon his return to England, he said, we need to send missionaries to this kingdom to teach them uh, you know, Christian values and ethics and so forth. And, and uh, otherwise, this is going to be a problem and a danger every time we try to go through this part of the world. Uh, so missionaries from the Church of England were dispatched to go to the Tuamatus and actually were, were very well received by the islanders. Uh, they welcomed them in and uh, treated them very well. Uh, they began to work on learning the language of the island and translating scripture into that and teaching the islanders about Christian faith. Uh, and, and that went very well for five or six years or so. Uh, and then a supply ship, a packet, arrived from England and on it were some new missionaries and they said to the folks that were there, you know, we've come to take your place in this mission because uh, your parents at home are gravely ill and they require your presence. When the king learned of this, he said, we need to throw a great feast to celebrate these missionaries who've been with us for these years because they've brought the message about the heavenly king to us and they've translated it and taught us. And so we need to honor them. And he, and he threw a big feast and invited people from all over the islands. They all came in and uh, had this grand event to thank the missionaries. And as they were having this event, the missionaries noticed that the king, although he was revered and respected by his people, uh, made sure that everyone else there was served and fed before he sat down and was, took anything for himself to eat. And they, they thought that was amazing. And one of the missionaries turned to him and said, uh, King, you know, this is, this is really an amazing thing. He said, uh, you know, we just noticed that, you know, you, you fed and served everybody here before you sat down to eat. He said, you know, back, back home where we come from, uh, it would be very different. Uh, if we had an event like this and our king came, he would expect to be fed first and with the best before anybody else was served. And if someone else was served first, uh, he, he might have them sent to prison. And the king of the Tuamatus turned to them and said, you've spent these years teaching me about our heavenly king and you would follow this kind of earthly king? The kind of king makes all the difference. So, so Edward Perenay writes this hymn, and uh, he's born in 1726, he'll die in 1792. Uh, he's the descendant of French Huguenots, uh, French Protestants that fled France for religious, religious freedom. Uh, first, the family went to Switzerland and then over to England. His grandfather and his father were both priests uh, within the Protestant movement. And, uh, and he originally started off uh, being trained to be a priest in the Church of England. But Edward was one of those extra grace required kind of people. You know, he was stubborn, difficult to deal with, very strong-willed, uh, contentious. And, and partway in that, he decided he, he really wasn't happy with some of the things the Church of England was doing. And so he disengaged from the process of becoming an Anglican priest. And he started hanging out with another guy by the name of John Wesley who also could be kind of stubborn and strong-willed, right? And, and they began to travel together, and Wesley would preach, and, and Perenay would lead the music, and they would on occasionally, um, or fairly often, have conflict with one another. Uh, there's a great story. They come to one of the places they're doing a mission, and uh, Wesley's preaching, and uh, Perenay's leading the music that night. And at the end of the service, Wesley says, Tomorrow morning, come back for worship, and Edward will preach the sermon. Now, Perenay did not like to speak in public. 
It was great, great for a, for a priest, right? He didn't like to speak in public, and he really didn't want. And he says, "No, no, no, I'm not going to do that." And Wesley says, "Oh yes, yes, you are." So the next morning, he gets up in worship to lead, and and he tells the congregation, "I am going to share with you the greatest sermon ever written, ever preached, the greatest sermon ever preached." And he opens his Bible, and he reads them the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of that, he closes his Bible and sits down. And now, 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 Wesley really couldn't say too much to him because, you know, it is like the greatest sermon ever given, right? I mean, you know, I mean, he couldn't disagree with that, but he was really ticked off with him. And then Paraday published this uh, uh, article uh, in England, which was just scathing against the Anglican Church. And remember, Wesley is still a priest of the Church of England at this time. And, and Paraday's article is just really harsh. And at that point, they parted company. Perinay then goes, he, he joins another uh, renewal movement called The Connection, which was uh, sponsored by the Countess of Huntington. And uh, unfortunately, he continued to write really nasty things about the Church of the England. So she throws him out of The Connection. Uh, and then he goes to Canterbury and he starts his own independent church. And it's while he's there that he's going to pen uh, all, hail the name, all Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. It's going to be the only hymn of his that's going to achieve fame. Uh, it's originally sung to Miles Lane, which is a tune we don't even have in our hymnal anymore. Uh, later on, it will be set to Coronation, uh, and then to Diadem, which is the tune we sang this morning. And both Coronation versions and Diadem versions are in the hymnal right next to each other. Uh, and it became a huge, huge hymn in England and across Europe and across the world. Uh, one time it was called the National Anthem of Christianity. There's even a story that one of the missionaries in India one time uh, encountered some folks that were uh, quite hostile in one of the villages he went to and fearing for his life he began to sing all hell the power of Jesus name and and that was enough to convince the the locals to convert to Christianity I suspect that was dressed up a little bit but nonetheless uh, the hymn had a lot of power to it and became really well known it's the only hymn he wrote uh, in 1792, when uh, Perinay passed away, the interesting thing is that he went back, his, his funeral and his burial were held at Canterbury Cathedral, a cathedral of the Church of England, which he had written so many ugly things about. Don't tell me God does not have a sense of humor. Oh, you don't like the Church of England. Well, when you die, guess where I'm going to put you? Uh, so, uh, you know, he went back and was buried there and, and spent, uh, yeah, you know, that's where his body is even to this day. So, so he writes this hymn that has this power and this praise to it, and it goes through, and, and it talks about, you know, all the way through, I mean, from, from, you know, everything is created, everything is created in Christ. It talks about, you know, the love of God. It talks about Christ offering for himself, and it talks about in the end of the ages, um, the saints gathering around the throne in, in the revelation of John and singing praise to him and throwing their crowns down before him. I mean, it captures all those elements of praise of Christ. And, it, it, and if you go into Scripture and you start reading the Scripture, you, you see pieces of this in a, a couple of different places in addition to what I've already shared with you. Um, in Colossians, in, in Him, Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or power, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He Himself is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. I mean, this, this hide him of, of the divinity of Christ, that in him everything is made. Go back to the first of John and read. Uh, er, er, everything is made through him. Everything that is is, is made through him. And, and yet, and yet, all the fullness of God dwelling in him, he offers himself on the cross to make a way for us. In Romans, um, Paul says, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. I mean, this, this understanding that we're, we're called to this kingship, to the lordship over us of Christ, and we're called to give ourselves to that, to surrender ourselves to that. Everything we do, uh, everything we have, everything we say, everything we think, everything we feel is to be surrendered to Christ. And yet at the same time, an understanding that, that, that God knows how we struggle with that. And God knows how we fail to do that. And so God makes a way for us. God makes a way for us through the offering of Christ. So that unlike that, that suzerain vassal treaty that says, you know, if you don't do this, you know, that, that, it's curtains for you. I mean, I mean, in this covenant, God says, I, I know that there's times you're going to fail. We're still called fully to it, but I know there's times you're going to fail, and I'm going to make a way for you. I'm going to make a way for you. Because that's the kind of king Christ is. Not, not just one of, uh, uh, of you know, legalism but one of grace and understanding. Now, there's a wonderful uh, resurrection story in John's gospel. Uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's appeared to the disciples, and, and, and uh, they have seen him and believed. But, but Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. I mean, this marvelous grace that understands that as much as we're called to love and be in obedience, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, that that there's going to be those times we just can't live into it. And God in grace comes to us and makes a way. So as the missionaries were getting ready to leave, 
uh, and go back home to England. Uh, they stood on the beach, uh, getting ready to get into the long boat that would take them out to the ship on the other side of the reef. And, and the king looked out on the water and he said, I remember standing on this beach with my father many years ago, my father then the king many years ago. And as we looked out, there was a storm coming, and some of our fishermen were stranded on the outer reef. Uh, their boat had hit the reef as it came in and, uh, and had wrecked and had sunk, and they were stranded out there. And we knew the storm was building and the waves were getting greater, and we knew that if we left them on that reef, that they would die. So my father climbed into one of the boats here on the beach, and he paddled it out to the reef. And realizing that the fishermen were too weak by this point to climb in the boat by themselves, he jumped into the water with them, and he lifted them up and put them in the boat. And then, knowing that if he tried to get in the boat, it would swamp and sink, he pushed them off for shore, and he remained behind on the reef. And about the time that the boat with the fishermen reached shore, <laughs> we saw the waves take my father. A few days later, when the storm had passed, uh, his body washed up on the beach. And we had a grand celebration of his life. People from all over the islands came. We built a great funeral pyre right here on this beach. And I became the king. And as I watched and listened as they gave thanks and then watched as the fire burned, I thought, this is the kind of king I want to be. I hope someday that I might be able to serve my people in this way. And then he looked at the missionaries and said, this is what a king should be. This is Christ the King Sunday. And we come to declare our obedience because this is the kind of king we serve. A king in whom all things were created and through whom all things were created and yet who would offer himself up on the cross for us. This is the kind of king we serve. A king who, who comes and, and demands the allegiance of our minds and our hearts and our lives and everything we have, and yet who's willing to offer himself up for us, who asks us to give him all that we are, but first has given us all that he is. This is the kind of king we serve. A kind of king who, who asks us to believe in him, and yet when we doubt, is willing to come and make an extra trip back. And say, here, touch me. Don't doubt, but believe. This is the kind of king we serve. We can come and proclaim that Christ is the king of our lives because we don't serve a king of harshness. We don't serve a king of judgment. We serve the king of our hearts and souls. The very king of love. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ. For in him all things were made, and through him nothing was made that was made. In him all the fullness of your glory came to dwell. And yet he walked among us, he healed us, he taught us. He even offered himself up on the cross for us. And then he was raised up to bring us the good news and the glory of eternal life. So, Father, we come this morning because this is the kind of king we can serve. And we offer ourselves completely to him because he has given himself.
completely for us. Hear us this morning as we come and proclaim that Christ is our King. Amen. Now, my brothers and sisters, I'm going to invite you to stand together with me, and we're going to proclaim what we believe. This is the good news which we have received, in which we stand, and by which we are saved. Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised on the third day, and appeared first to the women, then to Peter and the twelve, then to many faithful witnesses. We believe Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, in whom all things hold together, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell by the power of the Spirit. Christ is the head of the body, the church, and by the blood of the cross reconciles all things to God. Amen.